You're listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. Through a combination of solo episodes and interviews with some incredible guests, we bring you the insights and practical tips to create happier working environments for you and your teams. If you enjoyed today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or a colleague and leaving a rating or review on your favorite platform. Taking rest seriously and making room for it as a daily routine provides both physical and mental restoration. It is a kind of modulator that extends the longevity of careers and allows you to do what you really love without it consuming you for more of your life. And finally, it also sort of boosts the odds that or provides another avenue through which you can discover solutions to problems that so far have eluded you. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Happier at Work podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a real treat for you today. Alex Pong is talking all things the shorter working week and the importance of rest. He quite literally wrote the books on exactly that topic. So I'm really excited to dive into this conversation and to share some practical tips for what you can do to reduce the number of hours that you're working in a week to prioritize rest and to still get the stuff done that you really, really want to get done. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. As always, I will be doing a synopsis at the end of some of the key points that we cover on the podcast today. And do feel free to connect with me across any of the social media channels. I tend to focus more on LinkedIn. So get involved in the conversation. All of my links can be found at the website happieratwork.ie. And I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. Alex, you're so welcome to the Happier at Work podcast. I've been waiting for so long to get you on the podcast, so it's an absolute delight to have you on today. Do you want to let people know a little bit about about your background and how you got into doing what you're doing? Sure, and thank you for having me on. It's great to be able to do this finally. So my name is Alex Pong, and I am Director of Programs and Consulting at 4-Day Week Global, which is a nonprofit that, as the name suggests, is devoted to helping organizations transition to a four-day work week or some other kind of shorter work week, as is appropriate in their industry. And I am the person kind of behind production of sort of the content for national trials that have been in the news. I work with larger companies that want to do this sort of more one-on-one. And how I got into it was I had a book a couple of years ago about the four-day week movement that was really at that stage just emerging and only just beginning to become aware of itself as a movement, right? It had been, it was, you know, three years ago in the before times, (laughs) it was a couple hundred companies, all of whom had moved to four-day weeks on their own, you know, not knowing that other companies had done it. They were in all sorts of different industries around the world, varying sizes, but they were all trying to solve the same sets of issues around recruitment and retention and work-life balance and making work more sustainable and more meaningful. And they were all solving them in basically the same ways. And my professional background, I had worked for a number of years as a technology forecaster and futurist. And there's a term of art in that trade called weak signals, which is whenever you see something strange or really interesting happening in several different places, and it seems unconnected, 
that's a sign that there's something really interesting about to happen. When I saw this, my sort of futurist bell started ringing. I realized there was a story here worth telling. You know, the final piece of the puzzle is that the book Shorter itself and that project was a sequel to a, a previous book I'd written about the role of rest in the lives of really creative and prolific people. And, you know, that book was about how some of history's most prolific and accomplished thinkers, composers, scientists, mathematicians, even generals, and some famous business people had discovered the value of what I called deliberate rest as a tool for both restoring the mental and physical batteries that you spend down every day, but also as a source of new ideas, as a kind of creative wellspring, and as a way of making work or, of, or careers more sustainable than when you just grind it out every day and assume that you know, you'll sleep when you're dead. The challenge with that book was that it was really about like Nobel laureates and sort of people who had a lot of control over their time, not everybody else who has to show up at work and deal with bosses, et cetera. And Shorter was grew out of an effort to understand how the lessons of rest could be applied more widely for everybody. And the answer was to apply them at scale across an entire organization for everybody. And so that's the backstory or the explanation of who I am and how I got here. Yeah, love it. Absolutely love it. And I suppose for me, where I'd love to start is this idea of rest. And like, I feel like it's something that's come up in a lot of conversations that I've had recently rather than I think we've often got this message of exactly that I'll sleep when I'm dead the hustle culture you need to get up at 5 a.m you need to do all the hours you need to focus and I know certainly for me personally when I'm getting close to feeling a sense of burnout or I feel like I'm actually motivated to do more I just need to get this one more thing done so I'd love to kind of maybe explore this concept of rest why it's so important and what the learnings are for everyday people not the Nobel laureates like you were saying to address these issues slightly in reverse that sort of I think that the lessons for rest for everybody are they're really universal in the sense that so far as we know there's nothing unusual about like the biochemistry or mitochondria of famous scientists that makes them profoundly different from the rest of us at a at a sort of cellular level so what that means is that the importance and the value of you know sleep naps exercise all of those good things is pretty universal and the lessons that we learn from sort of, you know, whether you are Ernest Hemingway or Beethoven or Toni Morrison, these are things that we can all learn from. It feels to me a bit like, you know, if you're an amateur tennis player, you will never be as good as Serena Williams, but there are still things that you can learn from her about the game, about strategy, about how to train and so on. I think that the there are a couple different roles that rest turn out to play that are really important that I think are sort of under-recognized. The first one is that it serves in the short run as a source of new ideas and importantly, as an immediate sort of source of recovery. To stick with the athlete's metaphor for 10 more seconds, one of the things that coach, you know, that sort of smart coaches now sort of recognize is that 
rest and recovery are just as important as training for sort of developing and sharpening both, you know, physical abilities, but also sort of mental ones required for sort of for top performance. And I think that the, you know, you could draw a parallel between of the importance of rest for top athletes and for sort of creative people or anybody in a job that requires sort of judgment, deliberation, the ability to work with other people, empathy, all of these things that we tend not to think of as necessarily creative, quote unquote, but are part of almost every job where you're interacting with another human. You know, at the daily level, it allows us to or to perform those jobs better than we could otherwise. And there's more than a century of research that shows that our capacity to do good work across virtually every profession declines once we are overworking. We can deal with short bursts of a couple of weeks, but after that, our ability degrades substantially, even though sort of we think we're still able to crush it. It's also important, you know, when you take rest seriously, it also serves an important kind of moderating function. You know, for people who are really passionate about their work, who sort of like nothing more than sort of getting into flow, being engaged with ideas or their tasks, that there is a natural tendency, I think, to sort of try and do as much of that every day as you possibly can. And I think when you take one of the things that happens when you uh, sort of when you take rest more seriously and you recognize its value both for restorative purposes and for creative purposes is that it helps kind of temper that fire so that it is less likely to be something that's sort of that consumes you when you're young, but rather become something that can sort of sustain you for in a much longer career. And specifically, one of the things that I see sort of creatives who have a lot of, who have control over their schedules doing is redesigning their workdays around periods of highly intensive focused work where they have no distractions whatsoever, where they're able to really drill into their most important stuff. Charles Darwin moved out of London to the English countryside so that he could have more of this, right? So this is well before email and sort of text messages and the cornucopia of other distractions that we all have to deal with. But importantly, these periods of fo- of intensive focused work last about four or five hours a day. And you can get through plenty of stuff and be done for the day because that seems to be about the upper limit of what you can realistically sort of do in sort of deep work focused mode in a 24 hour period. And then you spend the rest of the time sort of to stick with Darwin. You know, he would go for these really long walks on a path outside the back of his house that he called his thinking path. And he'd spend a couple hours out there turning over ideas that he hadn't been able quite to work through when he was sitting in glorious isolation in his study. He'd come back from that. He'd maybe make some notes and then the next day would go back to work and sort of repeat. And, you know, working this way, working few enough hours so that a department head or a boss would call him into the office and ask, you know, what's going on? You need to grind it out more. This is a guy who changed the course of the natural sciences and the way we think about the place of humans in the world. He is an exemplar, but he is not unusual. 
that pattern of layering periods of deep focused work with deliberate rest, working really hard for about 90 minutes or so, taking a break, doing another 90 minutes break, maybe one more session. You know, that's pretty much the hard work of the day finished. That's something you see in the lives of lots of writers and mathematicians and sort of other kind of pure knowledge workers. It's not something that other people are necessarily able to quite get to as consistently, but you still see that sort of recognition that those break periods in a way are just as important as or the periods when when your head's down and sort of working away on a problem. In part because, this is the last important thing about rest, that downtime is restorative. But if you look under the hood of what your brain is doing in these periods, after you've been working really hard, you've still got a lot of ideas running around in your head. And let's say you go for a walk or or do something in the garden. That stuff is still in short-term memory. And your creative subconscious, while you're doing something else, folding a laundry, cooking, whatever, has an opportunity to kind of take that, take those ideas and run with them, to sort of take its turn, try different combinations of things, try this approach to a problem, sort of that approach. So even while your attention is focused on something else, under the hood, what's going on is that sort of your creative brain is still working away on these problems. And if you make a habit of this, and you do it on a regular basis so that your creative subconscious can recognize that it has these regular periods in which to work, is more likely to come up with a solution or at least a new approach to a problem that has eluded your conscious effort. And this is to go back to the idea of these being sort of universals, not just things that are specific to sort of very creative people. This is a kind of cognitive process that we tap into all the time. I think we've all had the experience of trying to remember the name of the actor who was in the movie and that TV show and that other thing. And it's on the tip of your tongue, but you can't remember it. And then five minutes later, you're doing something else and pops into your head, right? Yeah. Oh, that, you know, that was Scarlett Johansson. Um, <laughs> and that is what neuroscientists call the default mode network that kind of create a subconscious continuing to work on problems, even while your attention is somewhere else. And that same set of mechanisms, when given a sort of banquet of unsolved problems that sort of you've been working on, is highly likely to take them up and, if you give it space, to make some progress on them. And so I think that sort of taking rest seriously and making room for it as a daily routine provides both or of physical and mental restoration. It is a kind of modulator that extends the longevity of careers and allows you to do what you really love without it consuming you for more of your life. And finally, it also sort of boosts the odds that or provides another avenue through which you can discover solutions to problems that so far have eluded you. And really, you know, what I'm seeing in companies that are moving to four-day weeks are is a kind of recognition of you know the possibility that we can design working time and workplaces to give space for all of those things so that individuals benefit and so that organizations benefit end of rant well i was going to say i would add to that society as well society benefits from this as well you know there's so much to unpack from that you know one of the things that i suppose stood out for me was this idea of having time for thinking 
And I think it's something that's so badly needed at a lot of organizations, but it's not necessarily given. And it's really hard to quantify that as well. And I'm kind of have this image of doing laundry or folding laundry while you're in the office. You know, (laughs) I don't think you would get away with that too easily. I have this overarching question of how do we make this work for everyone? You know, a couple of things that I jotted down myself is like, what does this mean, practically speaking? What does this mean on a day-to-day basis for individuals and maybe for leaders in organizations? How do we build in more time for thinking? And then you were kind of talking about this deep work. Like I buy into everything that you're saying, and it's great for these mathematicians and these creatives who are able to carve out this time. The reality in a lot of people's day-to-day is, as you mentioned earlier, the distractions. It could be the emails that are coming in. It could be the bits of admin work. So it's great to have four or five hours to do the deep work. But what about the other work that also needs to get done as well? Okay. So I think that there are a few practical things to recommend. One important preface also is that you know we often think that these problems sort of so big or so embedded in work culture that they are unsolvable because you have to change the culture and then you can start to like redesign the workplace. My experience is that that's actually backwards, that you start with practice and culture change flows downstream from it. In the several hundred companies that I've now worked with or studied, None of them are trying to like reinvent notions of temporality for the late capitalist age of climate crisis or, you know, whatever. (laughs) They have very specific issues that they're dealing with. Half their development team or two of their sous chefs quit in the last six months or the founder had a heart attack scare and realizes that or if they've been working 80 hour weeks for 10 years and they've got two kids and they're not going to make it. The company is not going to survive if everyone keeps going this way, and probably they're not going to survive. So you got to make some radical changes. So starting with the practical stuff, with the effort to deal with that is where everybody begins. And then eventually you realize, wait a minute, I'm actually thinking pretty differently about my relationship to or of work to time to productivity. So as a practical matter, how do you do this? And the answers vary a little tiny bit depending upon the industry, though it really is important, I think, to recognize that all work these days has an important creative dimension to it. We have been working with several nursing homes and hospitals, working with sort of moving nurses and nurse managers to four-day weeks. And number one, talk about a profession that is overstressed, that is suffering from an epidemic of burnout. You know, in some countries, 50% of nurses quit the profession within three years of graduating from nursing school. Wow. Yeah. Or, you know, at the very least, they move out of the hospital context and sort of into something else. Certainly, the most challenging parts of the field are really struggling, and the entire profession as a whole has shortages everywhere. One of the things that I've learned working with sort of nursing homes is that you might not think of nursing or being a nurse's aide is something that requires judgment and creativity, but it absolutely does. You have someone with dementia, getting them up, getting them dressed, figuring out what their mood is and working with that so that they can have a good day. That actually requires an awful lot of skill. The problem that we have in you know too many societies is that we don't give that the honorific of creative work that or if we give to, you know, essentially people who are on podcasts with, you know, with big bookshelves behind them. (laughs) 
For anyone who's listening and not watching on YouTube, Alex is describing himself. <laughs> yes. You know, or if I squarely fall in the kind of canonical description of a knowledge worker, mainly because people like me have been the ones who've gotten to sort of define what knowledge work is, and we have defined it way too narrowly. That's one of the reasons that this stuff is applicable across a wider variety of industries. You know, whether you are a professional, you're a tradesperson, white collar, blue collar, salaried hourly. So one of the things in all of these workplaces is rule number one, protect the deep work that there is, you know, just as individuals benefit from having periods where, you know, they can really focus in and sort of ignore emails, Slack channels, et cetera. So too do organizations. And I think actually there's a little evidence that there's a multiplier effect when entire order groups do it, that when you know that everybody else is in deep focus mode and nobody is bothering anybody else, everybody is able to concentrate better. Nobody has to worry about either interrupting or being interrupted because you're all on the same schedules. It's also a little bit like going to the library during finals. You have that experience of being in a room studying with lots of other people. None of you are necessarily studying the same things, but being in the presence of other people who are concentrating really hard yeah. has a kind of social contagion yeah. sort of effect. And I think that recognizing that as organizations, that people are capable in those deep work periods of doing in two hours would normally take six semi-distracted hours to do and that people will feel better about the work and be able sort of to do it, probably be able to do it to a higher quality is thing number one. Number two is eliminate the distractions, right? So I think you know, there are lots of companies who are doing things like having meetings only on particular days of the week or implementing rules that say that it's okay to be off email you know, for most of the day, or that you should only check your email, let's say at 10 a.m. and at 3 p.m. And otherwise, you're not obligated or expected to interact with it for the rest of the day. That's not necessarily possible in every profession, but if it's something that you can get away with, then, you know, particularly if your colleagues are doing it and Honestly, our colleagues are the greatest sources of both, they're both productivity amplifiers and our greatest distractions. If you do it together, then those kinds of rules can have sort of real power. It's also the case that implementing those periods of deep work naturally kind of creates a sort of well in which people are not going to be interacting with Slack, et cetera, much less Facebook or Zappos. And then the final thing is recognizing that there is that there really is an important social and collective dimension to these problems and that the most enduring solutions come from collective action rather than trying to go it alone. The fact that we all have these challenges of figuring out how to make work more sustainable in our own lives, of figuring out how to carve out time to actually get work done in offices that often are like, you know, essentially like carnivals of distraction and to more effectively use tools that sometimes want to redirect and commodify our attention so that they can sell it to advertisers. The fact that we all have these problems, you know, much less the ones around work-life balance, dealing with children while building careers, et cetera, which are other universals. The fact that we all have these problems suggests maybe 
we should all solve them together. And one of the other great lessons that I think four day week companies teach us is that by banding together, by finding common solutions, you know, by changing around the structure of the workday itself and the way that work happens, you are able to create solutions that are far more powerful, that are more enduring, that do not create zero sum games or put you in conflict with your colleagues, but rather create situations in which all of you are working together in order to work better more sustainably. And I think the evidence is now showing to work happier. Love that. You're speaking my language now, Alex, working. Yeah, I'm trying. (laughs) (laughs) This is it. I love the idea that you're talking about social contagion and how when we see our colleagues doing something specific or changing the way they behave, then it's kind of an opportunity or almost gives us permission, I think, to do that as well. But also that they can be our greatest source of distraction as well, whether it's coming over to us in the office, you know, or being in an open plan and being impacted by noise and things like that, or just a pop-up message on Slack or or whatever channel that you you have active at the time. I think um, really, really interesting uh, insights around that. I love this idea as well that you mentioned about practice. So putting into practice what it is that you're doing and not expecting to go through this entire culture change program. And then out of that culture change program, things are going to happen differently, but actually rather more organic where you put into practice what you're learning about how to work more effectively, how to do better work, how to be more focused, how to reduce distractions and work building in rest into your working day so that then becomes the workplace culture as opposed to having a culture change program, for want of a better word, and then having that kind of come out of the culture change program. Love this idea of thinking differently about how we use our time and what it means to be productive. Because I think oftentimes we confuse being busy with being productive. And I'm guilty of that myself. It's so easy to get stuck in reactive mode and you're getting stuck into emails or you feel like you're responding to things so that you're actually really busy. But in fact, you're not getting the really important stuff done that's going to make a difference for you in your career or for the business. And the problem with that is not that sort of it feels bad in the moment. The problem is that it feels good in the moment, but it is not good for us over the long run. Like so many things that deliver a high, but turn out to or extract a price later. Or if I think that the almost all of us have the experience of getting a real charge out of working hard early in our careers, demonstrating that we can do the work, we can be the professional, we can be the, what sociologists at work call the ideal worker, the person who puts professional priorities over family life, is always available to clients, is the perfectionist, etc. And the problem with that is, it's not that it is instantaneously soul-sucking or destructive, but it provides enough satisfaction and works just well enough to convince us that this will make us successful if we can just keep it going and everybody else is doing it. So what other choice do you have? The problem, of course, comes when the toxins from all of that build up and when our lives become more complicated or when we simply get sort of older and, you know, the appeal of spending 12-hour days in the office is no longer quite as great as it used to be. But I think that the issue with overwork when we're young or those long hours is that they feel rewarding in a way, even if they're not actually as productive. And being able to disaggregate those things 
is, I think, a really important part of learning how to think more clearly about our own work, about how, how our organizations operate, and thus making it possible to move to something that is actually smarter and better for all individuals and for organizations alike. Do organizations that are putting into practice this new way of working or this kind of new way of thinking, do they have something in common? Great question. When the movement was smaller, they had more in common than they do now. Okay. Three years ago, when Shorter came out, I was looking at just over 100 companies around the world that were profiled in some depth. And almost all of them were small to medium-sized companies. There were a couple with a couple thousand people, but most were in the, you know, 20 to 200 range, let's say. The other thing that was important about them was that they almost all were still run by their original founders or some member of the founding team, which was important because at that time, when you were moving from a five-day week or, you know, six-day week to a four-day week, you needed someone with like the moral authority or ownership stake to be able to say, yes, this is a big change, but we're just going to do it. And who better to do that than a founder? I think that the, you know, these days it is more than half of companies come into our programs still wanting to solve those everyday existential issues. They've got recruitment and retention challenge, burnout, work-life balance, those things. And then there are a smaller but growing number for whom the four-day week is seen as a build on existing, let's say, wellness programs, other kinds of family-friendly programs that the company has put into place. And they see the four-day week as the logical next step becoming or remaining an employer of choice. Another factor these days is that for some is an effort to kind of to strike a new bargain around work time and work presence. So it might be, we want you back in the office two days a week because honestly, there is certain kinds of work that really happen best and most effectively when everyone is around a table looking at a prototype and we can get through this review really quickly if everyone sees the same things. And also if everyone can see other people's body language and understand that whether someone is really enthusiastic about, let's say, a design change or an edit or whether they're mainly being polite. And the smart <laughs> thing to do would be to spend another minute and try and dive in and understand, is there a better solution to a sort of to order to a problem that would satisfy you both? That kind of stuff is really difficult to do over Zoom. But if you are even for empathetic workers, but it becomes really possible to do or of when you're physically proximate. And so a four-day week can for some employers be an opportunity to say, okay, the deal will be you get a three-day weekend every week forever, but let's be all together in the office or of on Tuesdays and on Thursdays. They may also be experimenting with other kinds of forms of hybrid work or flexible work. And so this might be one of two or three experiments that they're running. But I think that those are the main things that kind of bring companies into or of into the program. I think that the other things that they all share are these are not super laid back places that already have like incredibly flexible hours and like cool lifestyle. These are not people like selling surf wax out of the backs of their vans down by, you know, the pier. These are 
law firms. These are nursing homes sort of professional services, places that have very high standards that attract people who want to do good work, who are probably a little too perfectionist for their own good, and who can easily be sort of ground up and burned out by these systems and by the work that they really like. The ones that, su- that succeed also are ones, I think, that manage to do a couple things. One of them is, you know, as I'd said, everybody has to work together in order to, to make a shorter work week a success. And, and the four-day week really is something that is like endorsed from the top, but executed from the bottom. So you need the approval of the CEO or to the founder in order to make it happen. And very often it is the CEO or founder who is the first person to seriously say, we should take a look at doing this, but no boss and certainly, you know, no consultant knows everybody's work well enough to redesign it for them and to tell them how to do it smarter. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you need to give people the space to experiment, to try new things, to fail sometimes, to learn from those failures, and then to get better. What that requires is, in turn, an approach, you know, what management people call transformational rather than transactional leadership. Transactional leadership is mainly about sort of small gains and kind of maintaining the current, sort of working within the current system. Transformational leadership is much more about creating space in which people can do great work that is meaningful for them with a high level of autonomy. And you need all of those things, the flexibility, the autonomy, the freedom to fail and to learn quickly in order to make, you know, to do something as dramatic as redesign the workday and redesign order of work processes. And in order to do those things, you need to unlock the skill and knowledge that your employees have. Anybody who's been in a job for more than a couple of years or in an industry or profession for more than a few starts to develop a list of things where if they were in charge would be different because, (laughs) you know, honestly, the way we do things is because we've always done this thing this way. I think everyone, everyone has an opinion on that, don't they? What they would do if they were running the company or what they would do differently. Precisely. And the four-day week is an opportunity to try some of those things out and to put them into practice. Yeah, Successful four-day week companies are sort of spaces led by sort of uh, transformational leaders that give their employees the opportunity and the space to sort of redesign sort of their work together. And whether you're talking about a restaurant or a law firm or a factory, those are the things that I see over and over again that make the difference between a successful trial and sort of one that is not. Yeah. I have a question coming back to what you mentioned about professional services, because that's the area that I came from. So we're very much reliant on client and we're delivering stuff to clients and we're on contracts which are based on time. And I know certainly from, you know, and I've talked about this in in previous episodes with Andrew and Charlotte from the founders of the four day week. In relation to professional services, how do you account for things like that? So the examples I think we had or that we were looking at were law firms and accountancy firms that are done by billable hours, essentially. Now, we had different kind of contracts in place, but essentially it boiled down to the number of client facing time or the number of hours of work that you completed for a client. How do you factor those kind of things in when you're, I suppose, transforming to this kind of model? There are a few professional service firms that 
move from hourly billing to value-based or project-based billing before implementing a four-day week. Mm, which is brilliant. So, I mean, it's the way forward, I think, is the value-based. It's got a lot going for it. You know, clients like the predictability, they're, you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, not every firm does this. Within the company, within the firm, what I see is a couple things happening. You know, one is the four is that moving to a shorter work week offers an incredibly clear set of incentives to tighten up processes, to reduce admin time, non-billable hour overhead sort of work, whether that is outsourcing it, automating it, figuring out what stuff you can simply actually not do because people never read those reports. So that's one source of time savings that gets you to sort of a four-day week without you know sacrificing clients. Another thing is that there are systemic gains, right? You have a big reduction in unwanted losses or you know unwanted turnover which in turn means that your head of people and culture is not having to spend as much time on the road recruiting people and that 6 months that you spent training someone isn't lost 18 months later when you know when they leave or just as importantly if you are let's say a specialist law firm um or some other sort of professional services if you've got those you know one or two people who are one of 10 people in the world who are experts in this important subset of this industry and they burn out and they have to go you know into rehab for 4 months and all of a sudden your two top clients are you know are screaming at you this work isn't getting done how are you going to make this right basically what this means is that there is a greater degree of stability in your capacity to do the work and to bill the hours and so even in places that see a little decline in the number of hours billed in any given month the total number across the year goes up because you are able to better predict your supply of labor and you've got fewer surprises on the client side in talking to about at this stage, 250 or so professional service firms about this issue. I have heard one story of one current client who said, this isn't going to work for us. And one prospective client who said, you know, I want someone who's going to sleep with the phone under their bed. Yeah, that's yeah. just, you know, that's just, <laughs> that's just who I am. Yeah. Incredibly, even in places like, you know, law firms, advertising agencies, PR, Clients are some of the biggest supporters of four-day week experiments. It needs to be explained properly, right? I think you need to lay out for them that you're not doing this because you've hit revenue issues and therefore this is part of cost cutting, which is much less of an issue these days. I think in 2018, let's say, that was one of the first questions that would have come to mind, right? Is this, is this part of financial retrenchment? But that it's a positive and you explain how that's so, but also explain, you know, make clear that if there is a genuine emergency on Fridays or what have you, that of course people are going to pick up the phone just like we always have, that we have thought through the big contingencies, we'll have someone on call on Fridays to pick up for if we've got a customer service line or some other sort of SLA level expectations around technical support, et cetera. And that as far as, you know, you, the client are concerned, your life isn't going to change, right? We're going to do the same work. We're going to hit the same deadlines, et cetera. If you can do that, I think clients respect it. You know, number one, you know, when you think about it for a minute, who's more professional, the firm that needs six days a week 
to get the job done or the people who need four days a week to get the, <laughs> to get the job done. Yeah. Number two, these are people who are dealing with all the same issues that you are. Yes. And particularly if you're not in a purely transactional kind of business, if you have relationships with these folks, they know something about how you work, you know how they work. If you can figure this out, then there are lessons maybe that you can teach them about how to solve those problems around recruitment and burnout and retention and sustainability in their workplaces as well. And so I think that so long as you position it correctly, that clients don't see this as a kind of suspicious move that you know betrays professional ideals, but rather almost as an experiment that you are undertaking that almost on their behalf, right? Something that is going to make you better, but also can point the way to solutions to problems that they have as well. Yeah, love that. Alex, before we wrap things up, there was a question I had from having read Shorter. And one of the things that kind of stood out for me in it, one of the things that that I can still picture where I was listening to that book when I heard the words, is this idea of creating policies where people are encouraged to take breaks or encouraged to take shorter hours. But however, the policies may exist, but people are not taking them. People are not you know, so it's not just about creating this policy. It's about ensuring that people feel safe to do it. So they feel like they're not going to be judged, that their career is not going to be hampered. And I think in, in that particular case, it was the policy is open to both men and women, but women were the only one taking advantage of this flexible working policy. Because I think from a man's perspective, they were thinking this is going to impact on my career. From a woman's perspective, they very much welcomed the flexibility. So any thoughts or, you know, maybe things have evolved since then a little bit. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, what you're referring to is the Hoffman Reed study of flexible time in a sort of management consultancy, and sort of for people who haven't read it, the 30 second summary is they were looking at the ways in which men and women created flexibility within their jobs, sort of balanced work and family demands. Short version is the women followed the rules and went, you know, took advantage of like the 80 percent or part time or flexible work policies, and they were punished for it. Whereas the men did it kind of under the table, right? They traded off projects so that so that during the kids' baseball season, they were not having to fly to Frankfurt every two weeks to deliver status updates to, you know, sort of whoever GmbH. And they were rewarded for it. Further, sexist assumptions within even sort of this fairly progressive place was that if a woman was out of the office, the assumption was she was picking up kids, even if she was pitching clients, whereas a man being out of the office was out pitching clients, even if they were pitching softballs. Um, and then finally, when these results were presented to upper management, the response was, this is really fascinating. We didn't know this. How do we help the women behave more like the men? Okay. As opposed to helping the men behave more like the women. Let us please take a step back here and sort of rethink a couple things. Does this happen or does it happen as much in sort of in, in four-day week companies? And I think that the, the tentative answer is no, because everybody is doing this and because everybody's success depends upon being able to work together in order to create that kind of flexibility and that sort of free time. And so my ability to go home Thursday is not dependent upon how efficient I am 
individually at increasing my efficiency by 20% or whatever. It depends not just on my ability to work smarter, but my ability to respect your need to focus and sort of our common understanding around how we behave during focus time or how we approach meetings and other kinds of communication so that we can all get the work done so that we get out of the office end of day Thursday and enjoy a three-day weekend. The other important thing about it is that it starts at the top. The other way that you keep people from thinking that this is a trap or that I will be able to to accelerate my career by not participating is if you see the boss doing this, that's a pretty powerful signal that actually the rules have changed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, and it's not just about following the rules. It's also that this begins to rewire your understanding as a leader, as a manager around the relationship between professionalism and sort of working time. I had one CEO who said that you know, before we implemented a four-day week, you know, I liked hiring people who I knew could put in long hours and didn't have a personal life, right? So, you know, essentially coding for preference for hiring unmarried men who were a few years out of university. After implementing a four-day week, I realized anyone can sit in a chair for 12 hours a day. That's not a skill. What I need is someone who can be here for six hours, who can be super focused who is professional, who can get the work done, who can deal with one thing and then another, you know, knock these things out and respect everyone's time, be empathetic, but also a little ruthless when necessary, and then move on and have a life. And who are the people, it turns out, who have that combination of professional capacity, experience, or of both hard and soft skills? It was the working moms in his sort of company. Right. These are the people, number one, who tended to be a little older, who had more experience, who very often had been just as productive working, let's say, or three or four day weeks as the people who were full time, but just weren't recognized for it. But who in an office where everyone is working four day weeks go from being slightly marginal figures of, you know, kind of questionable professional dedication to being exemplars, right? These are now the people who have the skills that you want to emulate, who are working in the way that you want to learn how to work. And so I think that the that turning this from an individual choice that then reflects or is interpreted as reflecting your own professional dedication, your obedience to the standard of the ideal worker in a traditional five-day week environment the sort of place that Hoffman and Reed were, were, were studying versus a four-day week environment in which everybody is working together, not individually, to achieve these goals sort of means that the, the impact, the outcome is very, very different. Collective action is the most potent form of self-care, it turns out. I love that. Brilliant. And, you know, it sounds kind of like we're all in this together, it's not individualism and I'm competing against you for time or for clients or for resources or whatever. We're all working together towards a common goal, which might be the four-day week. But in addition to that, it's the common goal of what the organization is trying to achieve as well, uh, with a very direct link between what people do on a day-to-day -day basis and what the organization is achieving, has achieved, is trying to achieve. Alex, absolutely loved this conversation. The question I ask everyone who comes on the podcast, what does being happier at work mean to you? For me, it's about flow and meaning. 
So the short term, it's about flow, right? It's about being able to do work that is extremely absorbing, that makes good use of my abilities that, you know, I can sort of sink into and lose myself in for order for a few hours. However, you know, flow is something that you can achieve like playing video games. And so flow itself is not enough for me doing work that also has meaning that is going to have some longer term, more enduring value. And one of the the great satisfactions of the work that I'm doing now with Four Day Week Global, it very much provides both of those things. Yeah. Right. A constant stream of really interesting problems to solve that I think are going to win solved, help make people's lives demonstrably better at potentially a very big scale. That's what being happier at work means to me. Yes, love it. Incredible, incredible work. And Alex, if people want to reach out, if they want to connect with you, if they want to find out more about you or 4-Day Week Global, what's the best way they can do that? 4-Day Week Global is at 4dayweekglobal.com. And then I'm not doing that much on social media, partly because my favorite local platform has been taken over by a madman. So, (laughs) and I really haven't migrated to... You know, no, I mean, and has been renamed as well, strangely. Yeah. So we won't say anything else about it. And also, I'm thinking about a new book, kind of sketching things out. So I'm consciously trying to do less there. My own website is called Strategy and Rest, and it is www.strategy.rest. Rest now, very conveniently for me, being a top level domain. And then, you know, I think though, as with any writer, my most important speech is actually my work, you know, is actually the books. So, you know, those are rest and shorter. Though if you're in the UK, there's a new edition of shorter called work less, do more, which actually <laughs> I have right here, which came out just a couple months ago. Brilliant. So with a fabulous new cover that's kind of inspired by mid mid 20th century Brazilian of architecture and design, which is actually where I lived as a kid. So it's a really appealing cover cover for me. If you really want to find me, rest and work less, do more is where, is where to go. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time today. I absolutely love this conversation. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. If you've been listening to the Happier at Work podcast for a while, you'll know that I love to make the episodes as actionable as possible for you. I love bringing practical suggestions into the conversations that I have with my guests. But I always wondered, how easy is it to implement what you learn? Or how are you staying accountable for putting into practice what it is that you know about? So recently, I've started partnering with Skilding.com. That's S-K-I-L-L-D-I-N-G.com. Skilding's suite of digital tools is designed to help you remember the most actionable content from this episode when you need it most and track your improvements while you deliberately practice. With Skilding.com, ensure that you're learning the right way. With their tools and resources, you'll have everything you need to make sure you're retaining the best of what you hear and applying it when it matters most. Head over to skillding.com forward slash happier to check out the insights from today's episode. That was Alex Pong, and I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I took so much away from it. I have so many notes and I have so many points that I want to share with you about the main points. I'd love for you to get involved in the conversation. Let me know what you thought of today's episode. As always, my links can be found at happieratwork.ie. So, 
Alex and I, first of all, started talking about the shorter work week and how that actually comes about from a practical standpoint. We talked also about the importance of rest. I'm kind of seeing both sides of the coin. I'm seeing a huge focus on rest, but I'm also still seeing stuff from people posting about the hustle culture. So you need to get up at 5 a.m., you need to work weekends, all of this kind of stuff. I can see the benefits of taking rest. And one of the important things I think that Alex pointed out is that when you take that rest, your subconscious brain is still kind of doing the work for you. So if you have a problem that you're trying to solve, you're not going to solve it necessarily by sitting in front of the computer, but you may solve it if you take a break, if you go and switch and you do something else instead. One of the other things that he mentioned was the importance of the time for thinking. And I think this is something that is hugely undervalued at work. It's something we spoke an awful lot about when, certainly when I was working in corporate, we always said there was never enough time for thinking. And how do we get more time for thinking? And maybe we underestimate the importance of actually taking that time because it doesn't necessarily feel like work, but it's such an important thing that we need to do. One of the things that he also said was about protecting deep work. So what is that important stuff that you need to do? You know, it could be a project, it could be doing some client work or something like that. What is that deep work? How do you identify what it is and how do you protect it at all costs so that you have a good run at it? So you have maybe two, three, four hours doing proper, proper deep work rather than, as we talked about, having six hours of kind of distracted work when you're getting the same amount of work done. One is taking you six hours and another is taking you two hours. Another important point I thought was that our colleagues are the greatest source of distraction. And probably because I have been gone from corporate for uh, five years now, I kind of forgot what it's like to have those interruptions, whether it's in person, whether it's uh, someone pinging you on your laptop, you know, looking for a chat or something like that. But they can also be the greatest source of productivity amplification. I loved that phrase as well. So look to your colleagues as both a source of distraction, but also a potential source of productivity amplification if you are working towards a common goal. So working together towards this common goal, what is this common goal that we've identified? How do we work towards that? Another really interesting insight for me was busy feels good in the moment. So you feel good when you feel busy, you feel important, you feel needed, but actually busy is not good in the long term. And leading on from that point, then how do we make work more sustainable? So maybe that's a question that you need to pose to your team. How do we make work more sustainable for us? One of the other important factors, I think, was the decision needs to come from the top, but the execution needs to come from the bottom. So no one knows the day-to-day work like the people who are actually doing that day-to-day work. And again, I can relate this to when I worked in corporate and decisions are made, you know, not even in the area that I was in, but the decisions come from much higher than that. And then we're expected to execute on that rather than us being in some way involved in the decision or the execution of that. And relating back to presenteeism, then Alex shared that anyone can sit in a chair for 12 hours. So just because someone is sitting there doesn't necessarily mean that they're working. From an employer's perspective, then, how do you become the employer of choice? And I think being a pioneer of reduced working hours, of a four-day week, of focusing on the things that are really important can make all the difference when someone is looking for a new job. Lastly then, one of the things that we talked about was this idea of a combination of having flow 
and meaning in your work. So not one or the other. And flow being that thing where you're capitalizing on your strengths and abilities and the work becomes so absorbing that you just lose track of time, essentially. And then meaning is more the longer term impact of the work that you're doing so that it has some sort of meaning for you. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and I'd absolutely love to know if there is one thing that you're going to do differently as a result of listening today. What is that one thing? Do get in touch and let me know and stay tuned for another solo episode coming up next week. That was another episode of the Happier at Work podcast. And if you've made it this far, well done you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to listen to today's episode. If you did enjoy it, please consider leaving a rating, a review or share it with a friend. I would love for you to get involved in the conversation. And also, if you'd like to know more about how I can help you or your business, head on over to happieratwork.ie.